Hello, hello everybody and welcome to another episode of A Day in the Life of Zori podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. And on this week's episode, we're actually going to go ahead and do one of those promised episodes where I dive into a true crime case and um, one that has most certainly sat with me for the extent of, you know, how long it's been in the media and, you know, in the forefront of our minds is actually um, something that just got a recent update. So let's go ahead and dive on in into the case of Natalie Holloway. So Natalie Ann Holloway was born on October 21st, 1986, and at the time was an 18-year-old American teen who went missing on May 30th of 2005. Her disappearance ended up making international news um, as she was currently in Aruba on her high school senior unofficial trip. Um, She was, however, from Mountain Brook, Alabama, and she had just graduated that May Um, of 05 from her senior year in high school. Her disappearance at the time, and I remember this vividly, um, actually resulted in just a media sensation in the United States. Um, I remember this so vividly when it uh, happened. I was in college. I was a sophomore in college at the time of Natalie's disappearance. Um, So the story is that Natalie had traveled to Aruba on this unofficial trip, and the teens were able to just kind of go out, celebrate, do the activities as they saw fit. They were chaperoned with seven adults on that trip. However, it was a group of 124 students. So the ratio, you know, the math ain't math. And I mean, you would think for high school seniors, um, graduates, potentially most of them being over 18, um, you wouldn't need too much supervision, but that's still a large number of students to adult chaperones. So the kids were able to travel in small groups and they just kind of kept tabs and checked in with the kids on a daily basis, but they were not with the kids, um, or the young people, um, throughout the entire course of their day. So like they would have like a checkpoint kind of timing every day. Um, And then the kids were able to just kind of do as they pleased. So based on that, they were not under constant supervision. Um, So, of course, young people in a foreign country, um, needless to say, there were, you know, not wise decisions made by the groups of um, teens at that time. So drinking, partying was a great uh, portion of this particular trip. And it was reported um, by some of the parties that they were actually not invited to return back to the hotel where they were staying at for this particular outing. So um, that just kind of goes to speak to the volume of activity um, or perhaps rowdiness that was going on within the hotel um, by the group of students. So on May 30th, 2005, Natalie was scheduled to fly home. She, however, never appeared to join her group to meet up for their flight. And it was upon this instance where she didn't show up that everyone came to realize that she never made it back from their previous night's outing. They recalled the last party that was with them and where they had been was a nightclub slash restaurant called Carlos and Charlie's. And it was at that time reported that she was last seen with some local residents in their car Um, And the resident names that were brought 
Fourth were Joran van der Sloot and brothers Deepak and Satish Kalpo. So right off the bat, we have three individuals who they were last seen with Natalie, according to the rest of the group that was traveling with her. Um, and the last known place where people remember seeing Natalie was Carlos and Charlie's. So immediately after hearing that their daughter has gone missing, Natalie's mom and stepfather fly to Aruba via private jet. Uh, They began to try and backtrack Natalie's last known events, last known places, people, contacts. So they end up at the Vandersloot home uh, based on their kind of retracking her steps. And when they questioned Joran at that time, he indicated to them that they drove Natalie back to, um, they drove her to a lighthouse on the beach and then they dropped her back off at her hotel. However, none of this story could be corroborated by the hotel or any subsequent footage at, at the time where the parents are questioning and going about backtracking their daughter's steps. So as of June 1st, 2005, Natalie was yet not officially listed as a missing person. However, there was a search party of roughly about 100 locals and tourists that headed out to comb the area to see if there was any sign of Natalie that they could find. Um, The searches continued to grow and expand over the course of several weeks to include volunteer teams, the Aruban police, Dutch Marines, F-16 fighter planes from the Netherlands, all with no sign of Natalie to be found. On June 5th of 2005, so May 30th, she doesn't report, you know, to fly back home. By June 5th, 2005, the first suspects arrested in the case for Natalie Holloway's disappearance were actually former security guards of the hotel um, that had been closed for, of a hotel that had been closed for renovations, but they were shortly released there days later. Uh, Soon after the arrest, they would release Vandersloot's father and a party boat DJ were also part of that group. Just a few days later, on June 9th, Joran Vardenersloot and the Kalpo brothers are brought into custody. Um, it was during the time frame when they were brought in for that initial questioning that the three suspects began to kind of change up their stories. So now the Kalpo brothers were indicating that they dropped off Joran and Natalie off at a beach near the hotel, while Joran Vandersloot insisted that he left her there and um, left her to walk home. So on July 4th, so here we are a month and some change later, a judge orders the release of the Calpos, um, while Vandersloot is remaining to be held for an additional 60 days with absolutely no reason as to why they decided to make this judgment call of releasing two of the parties and not the third. On July 17th of 2005, there were some hair strands found stuck to a piece of tape on an Aruba, Aruban northeast coast um, beach and it was immediately sent to the FBI crime lab but on July 28th just a couple of weeks later they were found not to be a match to Natalie's um, DNA so we're still kind of flying blind on July 26th acting on the tip of a gardener that claimed that the three students Vandersloot and the Calpos had been seen digging near a Marriott hotel authorities began draining a pond near that hotel They stopped their digging on July 30th with no resolution or indication that they found anything or that they had anything else um, to kind of go upon except for that gardener's tip. 
September 3rd of 2005, so that same year, Vandersloot and the Calpos were had been rearrested and were released on that date from prison on the condition that they remain available for further police questioning. So some time goes by where nothing really happens in the remaining part of that year where Natalie was um, Natalie's disappearance took place in 2005. In February of 2006, so February 16th, 2006, Joran Vandersloot is served a civil lawsuit in New York City accusing Joran of maliciously of malicious wanton willful disregard of the rights, safety and well-being of Natalie Holloway and further claims that Paulus enabled his son's predatory behavior. On August 3rd of that same year, this suit was dismissed. In March of 2006, Jean Vandersloot speaks out on Fox News for the very first time, and he recounts the details of his time with Natalie, that they were drinking at the bar, and to the fact that he left her at the beach. And clarifying further how his shoes went missing. So apparently throughout the course of that initial interrogation, it was identified that Joran's shoes had gone missing and there was no explanation. And during that March 2006 interview with Fox News, he did bring some clarification around the missing shoes. Now, fast forward six months later, in November 21st of 2007, Correction, a year and a half later, because it's a d- different year. The Calpos and Vandersloot are again once arrested, rearrested on new incriminating evidence. However, the evidence fails to move that case forward, so they are released again on December 7th of 2007. And in February of 2008, we find that Vandersloot was captured on hidden cameras that Natalie collapsed and he was unable to help her. So they got rid of the body from a boat. He then recants that entire story indicating that he was lying. So once he figured out that there were hidden cameras and he'd been recorded and, and captured, um, he recanted the entire story. He reneged on his story. Then fast forward a couple years later. So remember, Natalie went missing in 2005. So during this course of time, there is no trace of Natalie, no other way of identifying what could have happened to her. And in March 29th of 2010, Joran offers to provide the location of her body for ex- in exchange of $25,000 up front with an additional $225,000 to come from Natalie's family. This request was submitted via email to Natalie's mother and father, his stepfather's lawyer. And on May 10th, so he requested that on March 29th. And on May 10th, the family lawyer takes $10,000 to meet with Vandersloot in Aruba. And he leads the attorney, uh, attorney Kelly, to a house where he claims that Natalie was buried in the foundation of the home. Only again to later recant that story as well. And then he ran off to a poker tournament in Peru. More to come on Peru later. So this dude is just going out here, telling stories, and then immediately changing his story. So May 30th of 2010, Joran Vandersloot kills Stephanie Flores Ramirez in his hotel room. Her body was not immediately found because he had left clear instructions for the hotel staff to not enter his room. So he ran off to do this 
poker tournament, and during the course of his stay there in Peru, he murdered another woman. Um, June 3rd of 2010, Vandersloot is found in Chile, and he is brought back to Lima, Peru, where he's held in a high-security prison. In June 27th of 2010, he is, Joran Vandersloot is indicted for U.S. wire fraud and extortion for his attempt to obtain $250,000 from Natalie's mother. And then questions arose on why he was not arrested sooner on these charges um, before he had the opportunity or chance to kill Miss Flores in Peru. So fast forward a couple of years ahead to 2012, January 11th, Joran admits to killing Stephanie Flores Ramirez, and his defense claims that his actions were the extreme psychological trauma suffered from the long-running Holloway saga. So he is blaming this entire long-lasting case of Natalie Holloway and her disappearance as the extreme psychological trauma justifying his murdering another woman. So you can already see the type of person that this individual is. And it just like this case drove me absolutely bananas because I just hated Jean because you just knew he was lying. So on January 12th, a day later, Natalie was officially declared by an Alabama judge against her mother's wishes, but on the behest of her father. So the following day, January 13th, Vandersloot is sentenced to 28 years in prison for the murder of Stephanie Flores Ramirez, and he was pending additional charges for his extortion and wire fraud charges. So we have a sentence for the murder of Flores, who whose body was found in that hotel room. In January, uh, excuse me, July 4th of 2014, Jean Vandersloot gets married while in prison. Isn't that nice, you guys? Isn't it so touching um, that this dude finds someone to care about him? So he marries while in prison to Peruvian girlfriend Lady Figueroa. They had a ceremony in the Max Security Prison where he was currently serving for his murder sentence for Flores. Three years later, in August 19th of 2017, the docuseries debuts The Disappearance of Natalie Holloway. If you've heard of this case, you've probably come across this particular docuseries, and this brought on false hope that the mystery would somehow be solved. The six-episode series features a man named John Ludwig claiming that Vandersloot paid him $1,500 to dig up Natalie's remains and cremate them in 2010. The series investigates if the bones found are indeed belonging to Natalie Holloway, but indeed they were not. In May 10th of 2023, so 2023, so many, many moons beyond the 2005 disappearance, Peru agrees to extradite Vandersloot to the United States to face his charges of extortion and wire fraud related to his 2010 indictment. And on June 9th, of 2023, Vandersloot pleads not guilty to the extortion wire fraud charges, and he's then transferred to the Shelby County Jail. And on October 18th, just a few weeks ago, a day long awaited where Joran Vandersloot returned to the U.S. District Court to enter a plea deal, 
He pleads guilty to the extortion and wire fraud charges. And he finally gives information on the long-awaited and suspected disappearance slash murder of Natalie Holloway. So he gives the information to Natalie's family, and he admits that he killed Natalie Holloway. He disposed of her body. And the judge facing Vandersloot just said, and I quote, you have brutally murdered in separate incidents years apart two beautiful women who refused your sexual advances. Then the judge proceeded to sentence Vandersloot for 20 years for the extortion and wire fraud charges in a term that will run concurrently with his Peruvian sentence for the murder of Flores. In his chilling account of the events that took place when Natalie went missing, he admits that he and Natalie kissed on the beach. However, she fought any further advances from him and need him in the crotch, where he angrily kicked her in the head picked up a cinder block, and, trigger warning, proceeded to smash her head in. He then dragged Natalie's lifeless body to the ocean and let her go in the water. Now, in Aruba, the statute of limitations to bring murder charges is 12 years. However, a spokeswoman for the prosecutors on the island told AL.com that their office would like to see the U.S. Justice Department file charges on Jaron before deciding on the procedural steps to be taken. Natalie's mother, Beth, considers her daughter's case solved. However, she is not counting on Jaron facing any additional murder charges on Natalie's case. So technically, the statute of limitations has far exceeded Um, the Aruba 12-year mark. However, the case is still technically considered open um, in the country of Aruba, and there could be potential additional charges for Natalie's unfortunate demise. Um, One of the things that really stuck with me from this case, you guys, and, and, you know, I am a true crime just... I won't say fanatic. I'm just a true crime, like total geek. I love to know the ins and outs of cases and the psychology behind what drives some of these people to commit the, you know, the the cruel and inhuman things that they do. But in this particular case, the fact that he continued to just kind of in the face of all the authorities, just continue to change his story just drove me absolutely nuts and just screamed guilty, right? And, and you know, you, you want to assume innocent until proven guilty, but he just screamed guilt. And it was just like so glaringly obvious, but there was absolutely no evidence of where Natalie's body had been left. Um, so it's just wild because you think, you know, the kids are going off on this trip and just enjoying the fact that they've graduated high school, this amazing milestone. And this young woman's life was ripped away because she did not partake in the sexual advances of some random guy. Um, you know, it's, it's a dangerous world out there. And I, I just, I can't fathom that this was in 2005 and here we are in 2023, just getting a little bit of that closure, um, and truth to the case. Um, the extent of what he actually did to Natalie and what exactly happened, um, 
you know, I think he's still not giving everyone the entire story. I think he's given enough where he's like, this is all you need to know is that I did, you know, I did kill her and and she's gone. You're never going to find her body because you threw her back into the ocean. But it's just wild to me that he could live with, you know, this, just this guilt over his mind. Um, I did read in some of the articles um, recently published that he claims that he is now um, Christian and is like relying on his faith to kind of get through this particular um, obstacle of, you know, having murdered two women. Um, frankly, I, I, I am a Christian and I am a believer and I do believe that people can, you know, change through through the grace of God. Um, his behavior speaks otherwise to me. I think when you see somebody that's truly repentful, um, their actions speak louder than their words. And in, in John's case, unfortunately, I don't see that being the case. I think that he is a narcissist and he is just trying to play the system and play everyone that he's come in contact with to just kind of make himself seen as the victim even though he was the one who inflicted injuries that caused bodily harm and death to two young women. Um, so this particular case, I just, I could not believe that I was hearing Natalie's name again in the media and that Jean finally spoke. Um, I didn't think that day would actually come. So for Natalie's family, I hope that this brought some sense of closure, just, you know, as her mom said, you know, she considers it, you know, the case solved. And I think it's, it's the resolution and the final answer that, she, you know, anyone could want knowing how many years it's been, you know, I don't think that anyone was expecting to find Natalie alive. I think everyone had kind of made their peace with that, but, um, just at least knowing, you know, what happened to her and, you know, whether or not she actually suffered, um, was, you know, it's, it's, it's something as a mother, I, I, I would want to know that, you know, I know that they had a demise that was beyond their control, but I would want to know that, you know, it was something that, went quick and she didn't suffer and it wasn't a prolonged torture. Um, and you know, as far as we know that that is the case, um, you know, again, Joran is the only one that really knows the intricate details and ins and outs of what happened that night. Um, and what truly took place with Natalie and with Stephanie. Um, but you know, my prayers go out to the Holloway family and to the Flores family. Um, and I know that there's no words or anything that happens. Um, you know, we call it justice, but there's nothing that can bring their daughters back. And there's nothing that can replace that pain and that hurt and that loss. Um, but, you know, I, I'm glad that we've received some resolution to this case and to the story and the saga that's been dragging on forever, it feels like. Um, and hopefully now, you know, both of these young ladies can truly rest in peace, um, knowing that their families have kind of learned of their demise and who the culprit behind, you know, their deaths were. Um, so this was my taking a shot at doing true crime. Um, again, I don't really know that I'll be doing this full time because it does take a lot of research and effort to put things together. So I have deeper appreciation for all of my true crime podcasters because this is work, but I hope that you enjoyed hearing the tale of Natalie Ann Holloway and Stephanie Flores and that you 
you know, say a prayer tonight for their respective families and, you know, that God may have mercy on Joran's soul because clearly he was lacking one when he took both of these young ladies' lives. So thank you so much, you guys, for tuning in. I appreciate you. And until next time, bye.